Welcome back to Faith and You, You, a podcast for everyone. My name is Reverend McKinley, and I am the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy in wonderful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I welcome you back to this podcast where we're going to explore some of the deep questions of our day and figure out how the heck we can do this thing called life going forward in such a time as this, with such power as this that we have. This is episode 8, The Courage to Go Forward. And I've been trying to decide how to tackle this issue uh, as we come up on the one-year anniversary of the white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Virginia, the death of Heather Heyer, and really the the enunciation, if you will, of the evil of racism and actual Nazis and white supremacists and the KKK marching out in the open in 2017, 2018 in America, encouraged by the political climate that we're in, encouraged by the person who sits in the Oval Office today. It is a messy political situation, and it has been since the election of 2016, and it's affected me personally, as I'm sure it has many others, in that I am on the liberal side of the spectrum, but most of my extended family is hardcore to the right, either libertarian or, or very, very conservative. And we're at the point where we don't talk with my family members. There are family members whom I, I've been close to that I do not talk to and have not spoken to except in Facebook rants since 2016. And that's so frustrating and so hurtful and so disappointing and so sad. And I see that in a lot of places in our society, that in this situation, there's no dialogue, right? I think everybody knows that. It's just screaming on one side and and screaming on the other. And from what I see, I see people on the left, especially in the media, trying to understand people on the right, trying to understand those voters or, or those who feel left behind or forgotten. But the folks on the other end who are carrying torches and and screaming blood and soil and committing acts of terrorism, they are not trying to understand. And on a lesser end, my family members, who are not out there with torches, but who are nonetheless part of a racist system here in America, they aren't trying to understand either. And I think I've come to the realization that they're not trying to understand why the left is how the left is, why I am how I am, why I believe in caring for people and, and helping whenever possible and welcoming immigrants to this country and and standing up for Black Lives Matter movements. They're not trying to understand because they can't understand. And they can't understand because they're scared. And I don't mean that in a in a pejorative sense. Like, I don't mean that they're, you know, cowards in every sense of the word, but they're scared of this world. They're scared of the future. They're scared of of what the world looks like going forward if white folks are not at the top of the food chain. Because that's how it's always been. That's the world they know. That's the status quo. So they're having this fear-based response to change. 
And whenever there's a change in your life, any kind of change, that change is a loss, and that loss has to be grieved. So I think I've come to this realization that my family members, whom I can't talk to, are grieving. Even though they seem to be winning right now in the political sense, I think they're grieving the fact that they know progress is coming and that they won't always be on the top of the food chain, and that's scary because it's different. So I don't want you to feel sorry for them or pity them because we've got it pretty good. But I think as part of the understanding, you just got to realize that no amount of arguing or facts or figures or charts or videos or memes can make a difference with some of these situations because it's all a fear-based response, right? It's literally a fight-or-flight response, and it's the fight situation that's going on, right? It's not rational. It's irrational. It's based out of fear. And I see this in the way that we, we argue on Facebook or we argue on social media or in person that people are not engaging with the substance of whatever we're arguing about, right? It's not about the national anthem. It's not about the flag. If you're keeping up with the NFL, Colin Kaepernick led the players to start kneeling during the national anthem to protest the criminal justice system that is unjust and unjust towards people of color to criticize use of violence by police against people of color, especially unarmed people of color. And this protest has become the polarizing subject in the political debate. The president tweets about it, but no one engages with what the players are saying, what they're protesting. Folks on the right and folks who are yelling the loudest, folks who have an interest in keeping the status quo say, well, they're disrespecting the flag, they're disrespecting the military. And they won't listen to anyone who says otherwise because they don't want to engage with the fact that they know there's something wrong with the justice system in America. They know there's something wrong with police violence in America, but they don't want to admit that because to admit that means you're not in control. And to admit that means that you're scared because the world is scary. And to change the world that benefits you, either as a white person or as a male person, to change that world can be scary. So I want to read with you a Facebook post that I put up a few months ago after an exchange with someone uh, who was very interested in, in calling out the fact that my feelings were being hurt. Here's what I wrote. People don't want you to be outraged because so much energy and power is invested in keeping things comfortable for the white folks for whom America has always been great. Anything that knocks that idea is so scary because it forces us to confront the reality that our society is not as blameless as we want to believe. That's why all the flack that comes is, quote, why weren't you outraged before? You're making this a bigger deal than it should be. That's just emotional hyperventilating. It's faux anger. It's false emotionalism. Y'all, people don't want to admit that the make-believe world where race isn't an issue, systemic issues that have real effects on individuals that that's not the one we live in. We want to make believe that we are in complete control of our own lives. 
for religious folks, especially conservative Christian religious folks, we want to make believe that we are God. And that's why you say you shouldn't be so mad about the world treating others poorly, because it's not treating you poorly. They should make better decisions. They should be more like us. What they're saying is they should be more like God. So instead of confronting the evil of the policies and the actions of our government, of the police, of the military, of the prison industrial complex, they focus on the feelings, the faux outrage, the complaining. They say, don't complain because your life is just fine. Because that is what privilege demands. Right? Privilege demands we be comfortable at all costs. Anything that presses against the comfort of white folks in America is an attack on, quote, America as we know it, unquote. Laura Ingram was on the television talking about how the America as we know it is dead because of immigration. And so what she's saying is that white America is dead because of immigration, when in fact white America was never really a thing at all. Confronting the fact that your world is broken and that you have a responsibility to do something about it, that you can't just skate by and be comfortable, is scary as hell for people. It's terrifying. It is their fight-or-flight response kicking in. So when people are scared, they will do anything to keep up the bubble and pretend that everything is fine just as long as it doesn't affect us personally. Because we made good decisions, went to good schools, powers and principalities. Those are just fairy tales. Systemic racism isn't a real thing. Privilege isn't a thing. Liberals are just mad to be mad. Have you heard that? The reality that America was ever great for everyone and can somehow be made great again for white folks is a fairy tale. But it's a fairy tale in the same way everything is a fairy tale that we love. It's so intoxicating that we can't handle it any other way, right? We get drunk in comfort and in fairy tales. And we're presented with facts that won't change that. Anger won't change people's minds. So when we get into these Facebook rants and these Twitter rants and social media, I worry that it's not doing anything, that it's really screaming into a vortex and screaming past one another. Because the folks that you're trying to speak to are having an emotional response, an irrational response. They're scared. People that look like me, white folks from conservative parts of the world, are scared. And it is so much easier to attack the feelings that others have as fake rather than to confront our own fear that is very, very real. Because like I said, for conservative Christian folks, to be scared is to admit that we are way more powerless than our American myth has taught us, and it is to admit that we are not God. And white folks in America, especially white men, have always been treated as if we were God. So that's the issue that we're dealing with. Right? And I'm reminded of how this fear and this desire for comfort and this desire for privilege to be maintained and the status quo to to be maintained to tamp down our fight-or-flight response. I come from the Christian tradition 
And I bring that into my UU ministry. And I know that not all UUs are, are up on the Bible or trust the Bible or want anything to do with the Bible. But I want to posit that the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures have something to teach us, regardless of our theology. Because when I read the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, I see stories about people, about humans who are having the same reactions as us. So yes, the stories happened a long time ago, and may or may not have happened at all, but that does not mean they're not true in some way. So there's the story of the Exodus from the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you're not familiar, it's, it's the story of the Jewish people who have been enslaved in the land of Egypt. And their great hero Moses comes back, liberates them, leads them out into the desert, and they're chased by a pharaoh, and there's the whole thing with the Red Sea, and the sea collapsing on Pharaoh's army, and the chase, and, you know, if you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments, you, you know what I'm talking about. But after the excitement of the escape from Egypt, the scriptures say that the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. So whether or not that is a gross hyperbole, 40 years is a really long time. Four years is a really long time to be wandering in the desert. The Jim Gaffigan joke is, we're in the desert, folks, as in no agua. Four months in the desert is a long time. So for however long these folks are wandering in the desert, I would say, if it was me, any amount of time in the desert is too long. So we read the story of the Israelites wandering through the desert. And I'm going to read you a passage from the Hebrew Scriptures from the book of Numbers. Because the Israelites finally get to a place where they see the land in front of them. They see a place where they can go. But there's a problem. So I'm going to read from the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verses 32, through chapter 14, verse 5. It says, Uh... The Israelites have sent out spies to check on the land to see if there are anywhere they can live, and they come back with a bad report. It says, So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron are leading the Israelites. They're the leaders. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is God bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become property Listen to this. Verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly. And Joshua, son of Nun, tore their clothes. That is incredible. Right, So you have these people who've been wandering in the desert. They've been freed from bondage in Egypt, where they were slaves for millennia, building brick after brick building. And so they were freed by Moses, and they found freedom, and they wandered through the desert, and, and they believe they're being led by the holy, 
by the divine. They built God a house, for goodness sake. And now they're on the cusp of finding a home, and it looks hard to get to. It looks like it might be scary. There's obstacles in front of them. They can see the promised land. And they say, would that we should go back to Egypt. Would it not be better for us to go back to bondage? And they say, let's choose a captain, a different leader, not Moses or Aaron. And let's go back to slavery, to the status quo, to the comfort of knowing what was coming. Does that sound familiar? Numbers 14, verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, the future leaders, the young people of the movement, says they tore their clothes, a sign of mourning, a sign of grief in the ancient world. When someone dies, the mourners tear their clothes out of grief. When a dream dies... People tear their clothes out of grief. Folks on either side of the political spectrum are grieving right now. Grieving for the loss of the progress that we've made the past eight years, ten years. Grieving for the loss of what looks like the world that white people have known that is coming down the way. People are grieving a loss and they're mourning in whatever way they know how. In some ways that's been taught to be angry. And that's why there's so much shouting. It's about physical safety. Psychosocial safety. People will do almost anything to stay safe and comfortable when they are potentially at risk or scared. Even when you are looking at the promised land, folks... If it looks a little hard, you look for an easier way. So the folks on the right who are screaming and are terrified of progress coming to them, they're having a fight-or-flight response. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't do anything. You can't engage with higher-level thinking if you're concerned about your own physical safety. So whether they have legitimate reasons to be concerned or not, I don't really think they have legitimate reasons to be concerned, but you know what they're scared of? They're scared that as America becomes more quote-unquote brown, that as America as we know it changes, that existential fear is that folks, white folks especially, are scared of the trauma that white folks have inflicted on everyone else for millennia. So that's not to be pitied, but that is to be understood. White folks are scared that they will be treated as white folks have treated others since the beginning of time. That's why they're having a fight-or-flight response. So what are we to do in the face of that fear? I would say that we have to be brave. That's a common theme in my readings and writings and teachings. To be brave is what's required of us, what's demanded of us by love, what's demanded of us by our neighbors. For you, yous, we're all about love, right? But love is also hard. 
And I'd say that that love does demand more of us to be brave, to step out of our introvert bubble, perhaps, to engage with family members, to put our bodies online. I would say we have to begin to make reparations in whatever way we can. And I mean reparations here, maybe it's monetary, maybe it's physical reparations, but I think it's reparations not just towards people of color who have been wronged in this country, but it is reparations towards those we don't agree with on the other side of the political spectrum. And that's hard. It's something I'm not great at yet. It's something I try to do. I've started writing handwritten letters as a way to bridge those gaps to make reparations with my family members with whom I don't see eye to eye and with whom I have not spoken face to face in years. I've started writing handwritten letters and I've tried to explain my own vulnerabilities about how I'm scared that I don't know if I'm ready for a world where I'm not on top of the food chain as a white straight male. That's a loss of power. That's a loss of privilege. It's kind of scary. It's definitely different, and I think it's definitely for the good. That's why I'm trying to be brave enough to lead by example and to work for a world where that is the norm. And I have to believe that those people will follow along. Maybe after the current president goes down, it might take a little bit, but eventually. And I have to believe that because of my religious orientation. Because I believe that something holier than us is pulling us forward. That progress is the soul of the universe, as Rob Bell wrote. So I want to give you one more Bible story. Sorry, we're a little heavy on the Hebrew scriptures today, but it's kind of interesting. That we think that the Bible is so old and forgotten and far away and foreign. But this is a story from the book of Ezra that the first year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Persia, also known as Babylon, the history of the Jewish people, after Moses and Aaron lead them out of Egypt, they find their own land, they build their own kingdom, they go through a lot. Eventually, that kingdom is sacked and taken over by the Babylonians, and the Israelites are forced into exile. And they are in exile for hundreds of years, until the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent out a herald of his kingdom, is written in edict, declared, blah, blah, blah. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple of God. Let all survivors, in whatever place they reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods, with animals, besides free will offerings. The heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin, the priests of the Levites, blah, 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 got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. All their neighbors, all their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals, and with valuable gifts 
besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in his house. So what's going on here is that the government of a people whom it had wronged, whom it had stolen from, whom it had taken advantage of, declares reparations and says, hey, go back and rebuild. And not just go back and rebuild, but we're going to help you go back and rebuild. All of your neighbors are going to offer you free gifts, charity, whatever they have. And they are also going to give you silver and gold and goods and animals beyond what is expected of charity. That is not just the money that they have in their wallet at the time. That is more than that. Their neighbors, all their neighbors, give the Israelites what they need to rebuild. It's the case for reparations. And it's the case for the government. It's the case for individuals to be brave, to help one another, to rebuild a world that has been broken and that brokenness was caused by the same people who are now helping to rebuild. That's powerful for me. It's powerful for me as a white person. It's powerful for me as a man. It's powerful for me as a Christian who has been on the winning side of the wars of oppression for as long as time immemorial. So I am comforted by that. The reparations are possible. That it is up to me to help lead the way. That progress is the soul of the universe. And that maybe, just maybe, with a lot of love and a lot of time, I might be able to speak to my family again. From the place where we're not scared about a new world. Where we embrace diversity. We embrace change. And we embrace one another. May that be so, friends. And amen. You can follow me on Twitter, Reverend McKinley Sims. That is at McKinley, capital L, Sims. Or you can subscribe to my blog at uuministry.com backslash McKinley Sims. Rock me, rock me, rock me.